of all the, the, the special things that we do on Sunday morning, it's always great for me to see the baptism tank at the front of the congregation and not at the back. Um, it got kind of um, dusty in that baptistry over the year that we didn't do a whole lot after COVID. And I've noticed the last few times it's, uh, the water's clean and fresh because we're refilling it a lot. And we like to keep doing that. And so if you are interested in, be, in being baptized, that is the first step of obedience after becoming a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. He asks you to testify of your faith in him, of the fact that God has changed your life. And he asks you to identify with him, to identify with him in his death, burial, and resurrection as your old life dies and, and you begin to live a new life. And so if you are interested in that, whether you are a child, a teen, or an adult, um, there's enough water in there to cover you. And, and, and the blood of Jesus, of course, covers you as well. And so if you're interested in finding out more about baptism, um, please come and talk to me, or you can also talk to Wes or Courtney or one of our elders, and we'd be very happy uh, to lead you in that direction and that step of obedience. Uh, a few weeks ago, we looked at the account of a baptism that took place and is, um, is testified to in Scripture in Acts chapter 8, the baptism of a person we usually call the Ethiopian eunuch. And I want to look at another baptism today. Uh, this Sunday I want to share with you someone else's baptism, and you can find it also in the Bible. It's in Matthew chapter 3. So turn to Matthew 3, and you'll see the account of another baptism that is perhaps even more famous. Matthew 3, beginning in verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Well, then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. This, of course, is the story of Jesus' baptism. And, and if we can understand a little bit of what is going on here, I think it's going to help us in a couple ways. First of all, it's, it's, it's going to help us understand one more reason why Jesus had to be incarnate, one more reason why Jesus had to become a man. But second, we're going to find some real encouragement to live the Christian life, and we're even going to find something about the power that we need in order to live in the way that Jesus lived. And we're going to hopefully find that today as we look at Jesus' baptism. Now, when you read this account of Jesus getting baptized, the first thing that occurs to you is maybe the first thing that occurred to John the Baptist. Why is he doing this? What in the world is going on here? Why, why does Jesus have to be baptized? I mean, back in verse 11, which we didn't read, John confirms that his baptism was a baptism of repentance. And in Luke's account of this, Luke says that John's baptism was for repentance and the forgiveness of sins. And so, why is a man who has never sinned and who has nothing to repent of and doesn't need to be forgiven for anything, why is he coming for John to baptize him? Think of the misunderstandings this could lead to. Right? I mean, if you're out there and you're by the Jordan River and you see Jesus coming, or maybe you just hear about it secondhand, that Jesus went out to the Jordan River to be baptized by John, who baptizes people for forgiveness and repentance, what would you automatically just assume about Jesus? Well, I guess he needed to repent. I guess he needed forgiveness. I guess he's a sinner, just like everybody else. Most of us don't like being seen as sinners, right? How many sinners do we have? Raise them up high if you're proud of being, well, it's good, never, I, 
I'm a, I appreciate your, your, your honesty, but, but we don't like to be sinners. We don't like people to, to see us as sinners. I can remember um, years ago, back when I was pastoring in, in Virginia, um, we had a family vacation plan for, I think it was spring break, and we were going to go somewhere, but for some reason it got canceled, and so Dawn and I kind of at the last minute had to plan like a week-long staycation at home with our kids, and so we tried to find special things to do with the kids at home in Fairfax, and um, one of the things we said we would do is one night we would have a meal where, where everybody, there were four, four members of the family, we'd each get to pick a course, and we'd have whatever they wanted to eat, so you get to, everybody drew, I think, out of a hat for what, what course they would get, and then we were going to have this special meal. If it went together, fine. If not, then fine. And I drew the appetizer. And I wanted to make sure that we had something healthy to start out. So I picked cheese fondue for the appetizer. And as I recall, Daniel was the one who got dessert. And I think he was looking through one of Don's cookbooks or something like that. But he picked Kentucky Derby pie, which, yeah, which we never had before. Apparently it's, apparently it's got some fans here. But because we picked those two things, what had to happen was Don had to go to the grocery store and pick up some beer so that, um, so that we could have the cheese fondue. And I had to duck into the liquor store for some bourbon because you needed bourbon to make the Kentucky Derby pie. And um, we weren't doing anything wrong or sinful here, but still, as I, as I skulked out of the ABC store with my little brown bag, I'm, I'm looking left and right for members of the congregation, like who am I gonna run into here? Because you know what? There were some discussions that I just didn't wanna have. And, and there were some discussions that I didn't want other people to have if I wasn't there. And, and think about it, that's just when we're innocent, right? What if we're really struggling with sin? What if we're really underneath something? We still have a reflex to hide it, don't we? See, there are some sins that we can't successfully battle on our own. We need the help of other people. But when we struggle with these, maybe addictions or besetting sins like this, we often refuse to come into the light and get the help that we need. Or we do it kind of on the sly, right? Hypothetically, what would happen if somebody was struggling with this? You know? What do we say now? I'm asking for a friend, right? We can't say that anymore because everyone knows what it means, but that's what we used to say. Isn't it weird that we who are sinners don't want anyone to know it? While Jesus, who wasn't a sinner, was willing to risk having people think that he was one. And in fact, he dealt with this misunderstanding throughout his entire ministry. As the religious leaders said about him in John chapter 9, they said, we know this man is a sinner. Well, they thought he was. And even as he hung on the cross, Isaiah had predicted this 700 years earlier like this. We considered him smitten by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. In other words, we considered that he was being punished by God, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. It wasn't his own sin he was being judged for, like everybody seemed to think at the time. It was our sin. And Jesus took this misunderstanding with him all the way to the cross. He was called a sinner until the moment that he died. But going back to his baptism, maybe in some ways this is the point. You see, baptism is all about identification. Those who were baptized this morning, they were identifying with Jesus' death and resurrection. They were identifying with him. Now, Jesus did not need to repent. Jesus did not need to be forgiven. But in being baptized, Jesus was willingly identifying with those of us who do need to be forgiven and to repent. He was proving his commitment to truly being human like us, and he was not ashamed to do this for us. If you go to Hebrews chapter 2, 
you're going to read these words starting in verse 10. And you'll see a long scripture passage on the screen, but I'm just going to highlight some of it. It says here, I'll read the passage. It says, For he, it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist, God the Father, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation, Jesus, perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies, that's Jesus, and those who are sanctified, that's us if we're in Christ, all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I am the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. We talked about that last week. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. One of the things that Jesus showed, him and showed us at his baptism was that he is not afraid to call us his brothers and sisters. He's not afraid to identify with us. He doesn't look the other way and walk on by. He actually says, yeah, they're with me. That's my family. And you may have noticed also that the very first thing, I didn't read this verse, but the very first thing, if you read the next verse, that the Holy Spirit did with Jesus after he was baptized was he led him out into the wilderness. Actually, it says he drove him out into the wilderness to face temptation, to be tempted by the devil. Because Jesus had to know temptation intimately in order to truly represent us before God. And Jesus did face temptation. He faced temptation of every single variety. When the devil said, hey, turn, that, turn those stones into bread if you're so hungry, he faced the temptation to, to meet his physical desires in a way that was not designed by God. When the devil said, hey, jump off the temple to impress everybody, Jesus faced the temptation to gain popularity and, to, and acclaim in a way that would have displeased his father. When the devil said, I will give you the rulership of all the kingdoms of the world if you just fall down and worship me. Jesus, what he was facing there was a temptation to take a shortcut to the good destiny that God had already promised him by following the devil. And if you think about it, most of the temptations that we face in this life are just variations of those temptations that Jesus faced, basically to meet our needs and to achieve our goals in a way that God did not design for our needs to be met and our goals to be achieved. The dark places that we go into where we face temptation, and you know what they are for you, Jesus knows what they're like. He's been there. He's been there. He even knows the shame of failure, even though he never failed, because he experienced that shame on the cross as he was stripped naked and slapped and spat upon and lied about and ridiculed. Now, Jesus, as we saw last week, did not give in to Satan's temptations, and yet sometimes we do, right? Now, that's not a good thing. But when we are tempted, Jesus helps us in two ways. First of all, he gives us an example of a human being, a true human being, who successfully resisted the devil, proving that it could be done. But in Hebrews, it also reminds us that when we fail, Jesus also stands up for us before God, and he presents his blood as an atonement for our sins. Now, we don't need to sin. We believers do not need to sin. We're not slaves to sin anymore. 
and we shouldn't sin. It dishonors God, it damages us in our relationships, it brings guilt and the need to confess and repent. But when, when we do sin, John says this, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, no, the righteous one. Jesus, when you falter, will stand up for you and with you. He has faced the same temptation that you did, and although he didn't give in to it, he knows what it's like to be tempted, and he will stand up for us before God, not just as our defense attorney, she does do that, but also as a brother and a friend who identifies with us. This is not an excuse to sin, but it's an incredible comfort when we do sin. But let me go back to that other thing I said that Jesus offers us here. Not merely the comfort of having a sympathetic advocate when we fail, but also someone to show us what it looks like to succeed. What it looks like to succeed, even though Jesus had to battle temptation just like we all do. But here's where we need to pay attention to what happened right after Jesus' baptism. Because Matthew tells us that when Jesus came up out of the water, the Holy Spirit came down and descended. God the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, came down and descended on Jesus in visible form like a dove. How does, how does a man obey God? How does a woman obey God? How does a young person obey God or serve God? Where do we find the courage to obey when it's hard? Where do we find the faith to hang in there when we have to go through pain? Where do we find the power to accomplish things for God that are beyond what we would normally expect of ourselves or be able to achieve? We do this the exact same way that Jesus did it, by the power of God's Holy Spirit. It's the exact same way Jesus did it. Baptism for Jesus was not just a moment of identifying with fallible human beings. It was also the inauguration of his ministry. It was the official beginning of his great mission. Just like baptism for these two young people today and, and for us is not the end of something. It's the beginning of something. It's the beginning of a new life of following Jesus. It's the beginning of being on mission for him. It's the beginning of a ministry for him. It's the beginning of a new life. We live for him. But Jesus did not dare to attempt his mission apart from the filling and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. And he is our model for a life lived in the power of the Spirit and in submission to the Spirit's leading. Everything that Jesus did as a man, he did by the power of the Spirit. Everything, whether it was preaching sermons, making decisions, going to dangerous places, confronting sin, performing miracles, even giving up his life. The Word of God tells us that Jesus did all of these things by the power and the leading of the Holy Spirit. It's telling that when Jesus was confronted by the religious leaders one time and they, they attacked him and they, they accused him of doing his miracles by the power of Satan, and he looked at them and he said, you know, you guys think you're just bad-mouthing me. But you're not. You're blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Why did he say that? He said that because it was the Spirit who was doing the miracles through him. Just like it's the Spirit who empowers everything we Christians do to serve God. Remember what Jesus told his disciples after he rose from the dead. He said, stay in Jerusalem, wait and pray. Do not dare try to start some mission to the world until you've received power from on high. Because if you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're going to crash and burn. But Jesus didn't just command and teach this. He actually lived it. He's our example. And if Jesus needed the Holy Spirit's power to complete his mission in this world, how much more do we need the Holy Spirit's power to obey God and to serve him in our world? 
You see, as Christians, when we want to serve and obey God, we have a lot going against us, if you think about it. We do. We have, we have an old, sinful, fallen nature inside of us that is very used to getting its way. We have a world around us that is constantly tempting us to sin, even as it tries to convince us of the irrelevance and futility of following Jesus. And then we have a spiritual enemy who whispers lies into our ears designed to separate us from our calling in Christ and to drive us to despair. These are powerful forces, and if we don't have a more powerful force inside of us counteracting that and more than counteracting that, we are in deep trouble. This is where God's Holy Spirit comes in. If you're a believer in Jesus this morning, you need to understand that it is the Holy Spirit who woke up your heart and convicted you of your sin and unbelief and enabled you to put your faith in Jesus Christ. He lives inside of you now. He lives inside of you now, but what he wants is to fill up every part of your life. He wants to go through every room in your heart and make that room pleasing to God. And he wants to gift and empower you to love and to serve other people in a supernatural way. He will even change your desires and purify your emotions. Usually a little at a time, but occasionally in big steps forward. I was 19 years old. A lot of you have heard this story four or five times now, but but when I finally discovered this to be the case, I had known Christ for about 10 years by this point. I had never fully surrendered my life to God. I was a sophomore in college, and I was mostly just going my own way. I was overcommitted. I was trying to do too many things, and I wasn't doing them well. My academics were starting to suffer. My closest relationships were with people who were slowly pulling me away from Christ in different ways, and I just had a helpless, desperate, sinking feeling in my heart. And it finally got bad enough one night that I fell on my knees around midnight on a stairwell outside of a friend's dorm, and I told God that I could not do this anymore, that he had to do something. And I repented of my bad decisions, and I said that he was going to have to run the show from now on because I couldn't. It was in the next few days that I sensed God, really for the first time, beginning to change my affections and my desires. He gave me an inner joy. He gave me an impulse to worship. He gave me a new regard for prayer. He gave me a desire to seek out Christian friends. I didn't know at the time that the Holy Spirit was filling me and having his way with me. I didn't even know what to call it, but the Spirit graciously helped me even though I didn't know what was fully going on. I didn't fully know what was going on at that point. Now that was not the last time that I needed to repent. It was not the last time that I needed renewal. But from that point on, I understood something. And that was that even if I couldn't explain it, I knew that only by the Holy Spirit forming the character of Christ in me and empowering me, that I, that's the only way I could possibly hope to live the Christian life. Brothers and sisters, you do not have to flounder and stagnate in your faith. You do not have to give in to the flesh. And you don't have to despair of ever really changing, even deep on the inside, because there is a power, actually a person, living in you who can change you from the inside out. What you need to do is make room for him and invite him to fill up the space in your life that you've been clogging up with other things. If you are desperate enough to give up the demand to run your own life and make your own rules, and, and, and if you're courageous enough to ask God to show you where you have other priorities that you've put in place of him, and then you will surrender completely to his agenda for your life, and you ask the Spirit to take over, he will. 
He will. He wants to. In fact, that's an invitation. It's a promise. And he will start right where you are. Now, he may ask you to do some things. He may lead you to give up a certain habit or pastime. He may lead you to invest in new relationships. He may lead you to perhaps break off an existing relationship if it's particularly unhealthy. He may lead you to make a sacrifice of time or money or prestige. He may lead you to offer forgiveness to people from whom you've been withholding it. He will lead you to confess and apologize to people that you've been hurting. He will definitely call you into the joyful discipline of regular prayer and the reading of God's word, only sometimes it's going to seem less like a discipline now and more like a joy or even a lifeline. And eventually you will see a change in yourself. Others might see it too. You may find yourself loving others more deeply, wanting to help them, wanting to lead them closer to Jesus in some way. You may feel compelled to share Christ with your friends around you and with others who don't know him. And God will begin to show you different ways that he has supernaturally gifted you to serve other people through the body of Christ. The fullness of God's Holy Spirit will not make you a perfect, sinless person. Not right away. You have to, that has to wait till heaven. But he does enable you to make real progress in holiness and in pleasing God with your thoughts and your words and your actions. Yes, God is already pleased with you. If you're in Christ, God is pleased with you automatically because the blood of Jesus, his son, covers you and forgives you. But the Spirit of God will begin to close that gap between your position in Christ and your experience of the Christian life. Jesus, it says in Philippians, emptied himself. When he became a man, he emptied himself of his divine privileges and his glory in becoming human. And as a man, he received the Holy Spirit to empower him and to please his Father in every way. Now, you and I do not have divine privileges, but we need to empty ourselves of living like we do, right? and to confess and renounce the places in our lives that we've been acting like we're God. And when we empty ourselves, we will receive the Spirit in all his fullness to empower us, to please our Father, and to serve him in every way. So the question is, is that something you want? You might not. We're all attached to our own way. It's pretty compelling. But do you want the Holy Spirit more? Do you want God's agenda more? Do you want God's power more than your own? Do you want God's plan more than your own? Do you want Jesus' character more than your own imitation of it? Then why not make room for him this morning and invite him to really fill up your heart and take over your life? The reason that, that I moved the, the last two songs to the end of the service today was to give you an opportunity to make that commitment. I know God is speaking to some of you right now, and if he is speaking to, to, to you, you don't want to miss this opportunity because he is inviting you to allow the Holy Spirit. This is an invitation for Christians, people who already know Jesus, that need to, to get some of, the, some of the stuff that's clogging the pipes out of the way, some of the, 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 the way in which your own agenda, your own, your, your own flesh has come in and gotten in the way of what God is doing and invite him to come in by his Holy Spirit and take over every part of you.
and God will change you, and God will use you. So if that's you, I want to invite you to, to, to come forward. You can still come forward during this time, as always, for healing or for prayer or whatever your need might be or to talk to an elder. But these altars are open. Um, feel free to come and just kneel at the front. Ask the Holy Spirit to come and fill you. Don't be surprised if somebody comes up and maybe prays with you just kind of to, to, to help you along. But this is you surrendering to God's power, to God's plan, to God's agenda, and also to God's love because he really wants this for you. Let's pray.